We start today with the campaign for justice for Amanda Todd. It was back in 2012. The Port Coquitlam teenager took her own life after posting a heartbreaking video on social media that was viewed millions of times around the world in which she revealed how she was harassed and blackmailed online by an adult predator. Now, a major development in this case, a 42-year-old Dutch man, Aiden Coban, has now been extradited to Canada to face charges here. Here to discuss now is my guest, Carol Todd, the mother of Amanda Todd. Carol, thank you for coming on this morning. Thank you for, for inviting me, and good morning. It's our, it's our honor to have you here. It's, in, it's incredible to think it's been more than eight years now since you lost your daughter, Amanda. I can't think of a worse nightmare for any parent. So may I say I'm sorry for your loss, and I'm amazed by your, your great courage in becoming an advocate for other victims of cyberbullying and harassment, so I, I salute you for that. Um, let's, let's talk about briefly what happened to Amanda. Can, can you describe, like, when she first encountered an online predator, there, there was a photo of her, right, that was uploaded to porn sites, and it was widely distributed. I know it caused her much, much grief. Can, can you briefly describe how that, what happened there? Uh, the the image was uploaded to an adult porn site, um, and I became aware of it, or, or actually everyone in our community and Amanda's peers became aware of it on December 23rd of 2010. Right. Um, and and so luckily, one of her peers reported it to their parent, and the parent called the RCMP who appeared at my door for a safety check, and then that's what started the whole um, investigation and, and talking to Amanda and, and seeing what had happened. Um, Amanda was taken off the internet for a while and everything went quiet, but it, and then we gradually let her back on and then this, this person appeared again um, and shared her image, but not on a porn site, but to email addresses, to school districts, friends groups he infiltrated um, her social media so that um, spread the picture out there and and that cre- that created the bullying and the cyberbullying that happened what this fellow did was extortion and, and sextortion right. as we call it now and, and cyber abuse abusive behaviors right and harassment and so um, there's there's two things that come into play when we talk about what happened to Amanda? This, this was a situation where it was an, an adult who was was pretending to be like a young person, and then it asked her, it asked Amanda to pull her shirt up. I believe I recall, right? I don't was know it? all the details because yeah. it's a, still an ongoing investigation, and now a, a trial coming up. Right. Um, but allegedly, that was yeah. his his um, way of interacting. Um, knowing this through the other trial that he went through in Amsterdam in 2017 in the Netherlands, where he got convicted of um, close to 11 years, right? Sentenced to 11 years. And so one can only assume that what he was doing to other victims, he was, Amanda was just one of his other victims, right? She, she wasn't, it's just that she, her name wasn't, um, added to the trial in the Netherlands back in, in the 2016, 2017s. But the, as you mentioned, that all occurred in December of 2010. So 
two year, almost two years before Amanda mm-hmm. took her own, her own life. Can you describe like what happened in the interim? There was was Amanda. Uh, how did was she seeking? Was she in therapy counseling? Did she get help? Um, as soon as as soon as it went out, and then it was winter break, and then she went back to school, and then we had peers, well, peers messaging her, and then um, when it was face to face back to school, people would bring it up, and yeah. Amanda was. Um, traumatized she was a victim right and that was when her self-esteem and depression started to um come into play and so uh she had multiple school moves right but because the internet is so open um the image followed her the the story followed her to wherever she went. And, and I mean, we've lived in our community of Port Coquitlam for a long time, and she was in sports, too. And people and young people from all different communities um, came into this arena, right? And so nothing really stays quiet on the Internet, and that was one of the um, problems is that it just kept going. Um, when it would die and when it would fade away, um, it would flare up the the again. alleged abuse of Mr. Coban, because yeah. he hasn't been convicted yet, um, it would rear its ugly head and start it all over again. And, and you think of it like filling your garbage can, right? It just layered and layered and layered. Every time it came up, Amanda thought it would go away, that he was gone, and then he would come back and, and um, repost images. and, and oh. re- So it went on for, as long as I know, a good year after December 2010, right? So up to November 2011. And then um, then the peers took over. The peer abuse, cyberbullying, bullying took over. And then Amanda ended her life in October 2012. It's it's absolutely tragic. She was uh, just 15 years old and a child. Um, Let me ask you about this case now. Uh, You mentioned that Aiden Coban has now been uh, transferred to Canada, and you, as you as you described, he had already faced charges in the Netherlands, right? I believe you went to that trial in the Netherlands, right? I did. Yeah. Why? Why did? Why did you do that? Or can you describe what that was like? Well, for the longest time, people had asked me if I was going to go, and I said no. I was adamantly saying no. I, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. And as it got closer to the trial date, um, I, I sort of shifted my thinking. In that one, I needed to see him um, in order to, it was sort of like a practice for me to see how I would feel. Wanted to see him face to face, wanted to be a part of this trial to support those other victims and their family because I know what they've gone through. Fortunately, um, all the all the victims um, are, for lack of a better word, are alive and well. Um, and then two, I thought I needed to see him in case he never got extradited here. Are you, and, what are your thoughts on him being extradited to Canada here to face these charges now? Did you think that would ever happen? To be honest, I, I wasn't sure because it's been so long. So charges were laid on him against Amanda in April 2014, and now we're in, um, well, let's talk about the date he arrived, December 2020, right? Yeah. So long. And and I've been 
um, told on all the steps along the way. So I, I've known what's been happening, but they had to get through his trial in Amsterdam and then his sentencing and then he appealed and then another trial and then he appealed that one and then the extradition, there's a long process between the two countries um, for approval, right? The the high, high, it went up to the Supreme Court in Amsterdam and then it in the, it was in the hands of the federal government here, and in the middle, Aiden Caban appealed those too. So every time you appeal, there's a, a long wait. Right. And then COVID hit. And so, honestly, I didn't know if it was ever going to happen. <laughs> but I'm grateful and thankful that it has happened, that he is in Canada, that um, we will have a trial. And so I think this Friday coming up, the the defense team, the prosecution and the defense will be meeting in a hearing to discuss details. But he's here. Like, we've waited so long. And I haven't really, people ask me, doesn't it just um, make you angry? And mm. you know what? I, I can't hold anger of, of the wait time. It, it's a matter of it will be what it is. Um, because I was always under the impression, too, that if he never came here for a trial, there would still be a trial. It would just be on the other side of the water, right? So all I wanted was there to be a trial so that we could see justice served. Um, Okay. We continue continue to follow the case with very keen interest. And, Carol, thank you for coming on today to tell me your reaction to the extradition. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been more than eight years since the Port Coquitlam teenager took her own life. People will remember that heartbreaking video she posted on social media in which Amanda revealed how she was harassed and blackmailed online by an adult predator. You may recall the video where she was silently holding up flashcards uh, describing what happened to her. Now a major development in this case. you got a 42-year-old Dutch man, Aidan Coban, has been extradited to Canada to face charges. He has already been convicted by a court in the Netherlands, serving jail time there, now facing fresh charges here in Canada. Let's continue talking about this now with my guest, Barbara Coloroso. She is an international best-selling author, speaker, and consultant on parenting, bullying, conflict resolution, and restorative justice. I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Barbara, thank you for coming on. Thank you, Mike, for having me on this really important topic that's not going away. Yeah, for sure. It's been it's great to talk to you again. And I remember talking to you years ago in the past about this particular case. And people will remember that that chilling video that Amanda Todd posted uh, before she took her own life. And that that video was viewed more than 13 million times online and went around the world. Um, what, what are your memories of that? Like, do you think that, that started that whole video started a whole new conversation on this issue? It certainly did, and her suicide um, pointed out the the nature of cyberbullying and what it can do to a, a young person's mental health yeah. um, and, and how they could uh, slip into such depression. But I'd also like to point out that it wasn't just what happened to her online. We also have to tune into the effect of what it did offline. Yes that uh, her peers tar- retargeted her, uh, calling her gross sexual terms and the like. And you add online and offline together, which is happening more and more today. Um, and the, the 
serious depression young people can go into very quickly is magnified. And they have no uh, recourse. How do you stop young people in school under the radar of adults targeting you? So uh, she was, it magnified it for her. And I think it's real important that we recognize online and offline have merged for this generation in yeah. a way many of us had never even imagined. Yeah, and we was, as parents and educators have to be on top of that. Yeah, she was a victim of both both types of harassment, that is for sure, and bullying. Do you think, that, I find this case extraordinary. Here we have this, this, this 42-year-old man who's already been tried and jailed in the Netherlands, now coming to Canada to face a new set of charges here. Do you think that, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Like, have we seen many, are there many precedents for this, of these type of cases and people being extradited to other countries to face charges? Um, it's happening more. Yeah. Uh, and this case brought it to light. And Amanda's mother, Carol, has kept it in the spotlight, which is very important. First, for the awareness for teens and for their parents that this can happen to anyone. And secondly, I believe he's coming, as I read, to clear his name, which is going to be very difficult to do with all the mag- metadata that's out there connecting him to this crime and yes. also being uh, the lot in the United States and Canada and in Europe. So uh, I think we have to tune in to the justice system um, and not put a lot of, uh, I mean, it, it, to hold him accountable is one thing. Uh, but the justice system is slow. I mean, look how many years it's been already. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we have to do yeah, as parents and educators and as the public is to get ourselves up to speed on what our young people are doing and the latest technology. Uh, before, my book has been updated three times, but now we have TikTok that has come to the fore even more. Uh, and you and I have to get educated about this and, and be able to sit down and have a good dialogue with our young people about if you do something stupid online and mm-hmm. this is happening to you, it's safe to tell us and we will work with you. Um, the police were slow, uh, as I think Carol would say, to recognize it for the severity that it really was. I don't think that's happening now. I think both, I know in my own country that it's being taken far more seriously, especially when it's right. underage kids, because of the Amanda Todd story. We just have a minute, one minute left here, Barbara. Um, for any parents out there listening, eight years ago, a lot has changed in eight years since Amanda Todd's story exploded around the world, headlines, and her very tragic death. We know more about this type of harassment, sexting, that kind of thing. For, for, what would be your, for your advice for parents out there who are worried about their own kids, maybe if they're worried about their kids being asked to post for photos online? The most important thing we as parents and I'm as a grandparent can do is be aware of what's going on and let our children know that they can talk to us about the good, the bad, and the ugly, yeah. that we are not there to censor them. Many kids will not tell them what's happened online because they're afraid you'll take their cell phones away from you. Afraid you. They were the ones targeted, but they're afraid you'll take their computers away from them. And you have to assure them that this is a dangerous situation and we're here and you can talk to us. But that means okay. all throughout their lives, we have to be willing to say, you can talk to me about anything without judgment, without my getting angry, and we're going to help you get through this because you, we can okay. get through this together. 
Barbara, thank you for your expertise this morning. And thank you for having me. And uh, um, I wish Carol and her husband some peace from all this, that they have made a difference. So do I. Thank you. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the latest in Metro Vancouver's gang wars now. Two more fatal shootings last week. Also, the RCMP issuing this unusual warning about social media rumors, as they called it, about women being abducted on the streets of Metro. Police trying to calm fears there. Let's talk to BC's best crime reporter about this now, Kim Boland from the Vancouver Sun. I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Hi, Kim. Hi, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. Let's talk about these latest shootings that you've been writing about, and I, I encourage people to check out your work in the Sun on this. It's just been great as usual. Let's let's talk about the last the two hits that we saw last week in Burnaby. Which one yeah. do we start with here? But Chris Ken, Chris Kenworthy, thirty-two-year-old. Very, very troubling to see yeah. the violence continue. I thought there might be a little bit of a break because someone linked to the Brothers Keepers gang, who's believed to be part of uh, the violent trend that we've seen in recent weeks fled to the United States, which I reported uh, a little while back, and they're now hunting for him down there. His name is uh, Nassim Mohammed. Um, but still, we've got this violence carrying on. Chris Kenworthy um, had a lifelong uh, involvement with the police and criminal activity. Uh, he had links at the time of his death to uh, the Wolf Pack, not actually a gang member, but associated to that group. Uh, when he was just 17, he fatally shot a cocaine trafficker and um, got sentenced as an adult to nine years in prison. So this is someone who has been connected with the system for a long time. His mur- murder is believed to be directly linked to this ongoing conflict uh, between uh, the Brothers Keepers slash Wolf Pack, Pack Gang and other lower mainline crime groups. Um, okay. 32, yeah. year, 32 years old, he was found gunned down in Burnaby on Wednesday night, and as you mentioned, uh, connected to the Wolfpack gang. It, sometimes I find it hard to keep track of all these various gangs, Can we got the United Nations, the Red Scorpions, there's so many, the Brothers Keepers. Where, where does the Wolfpack fit in here? Well, the Wolfpack began about a decade ago, and it was almost like a coalition, if you will, quite loose of some members of the Independent Soldiers, some members of the Hells Angels, and some members of the Red Scorpions. But really now it has its own identity, and in fact, in some instances, is in conflict with some of the original group members of the Wolf Pack. So uh, they're, um, the, the Wolf Pack controls kind of the drug trade in the downtown east side. Uh, they're aligned with the Brothers Keepers. They're aligned with this uh, Toronto group that's moved into the lower mainland called the Driftwood Crips. Um, wow. So... I mentioned Nassim Mohammed, who fled to the U.S., uh, is wanted here in uh, Canada, um, both in Ontario and B.C. And interestingly, in some of the U.S. court documents I found, they list him as a suspect in multiple murders in two provinces. So this is a guy who would be aligned with that Wolfpack side, though he's in the Brothers Keepers, um, and is linked to a lot of the violence and is no longer here. <laughs> Okay, so in that, in that case, this, this man was found dead in his car eight, uh, around 8 o'clock Wednesday night. The, the next morning, right, was the next morning that the, we saw the shooting death of Shanna Harris Morris. What can you tell us about her? Well, she was a young woman who struggled with addiction. She'd had a few run-ins with the police, had been living a fairly marginalized life, uh, though was obviously well-loved by her family members. Uh, she was shot in a uh, home in North Surrey where she had been living Uh, with a much older man. He was wounded in the shooting. Her shooting uh, is not believed to be directly linked to the 
um, the overarching gang conflict, uh, but it's believed to be linked to sort of the frontline street-level drug trade, where there are also a lot of firearms, and therefore there are also a lot of shootings, and we see murders at that level as well. So just as tragic, um, you know, terrible this gun violence, but not sort of linked to the broader gang conflict that we've seen so many deaths linked to in the last few weeks. Right, just 23 years old, and you mentioned her family, uh, heartbroken here, have been posting tributes to her online. And in that particular case, there was a, another man who was also, who was, he was also shot but uh, survived, correct? Yes, yes, that's right. Um, we don't know his specific gang affiliation, but I have heard from some police sources that the house had been kind of a, you know, a lot of police called to that house, um, apparently quite a bit of drug use going on there, uh, maybe a bit of a drug house. And, you know, as a result, um, you know, uh, you have acts of violence that occur, right? So, yeah. again, something that police are investigating, very troubling, um, not linked to the bigger gang conflict, but linked to the violence associated to the drug trade in this province and on the lower mainland specifically. Right. Okay, that shooting uh, happening in Surrey. So we continue to see uh, these type of targeted shootings happen in various municipalities around around the lower mainland. And when we hear about these shootings, Kim, I mean... You know, we often think like, okay, these are gangsters fighting over drug turf, but there's also like a lot of this stuff gets personal. A lot of some of these shootings can be possibly be like retaliation and retribution for earlier conflicts, right? Oh, for sure. Uh, there's often multiple reasons why someone wants someone killed, and you know, as I've reported before, and I think we've talked about previously, in some cases, the higher profile people have contracts out on their head. So the person who takes that contract and goes and does the shooting may be a really young person who doesn't even know uh, their target personally, right? So you have that as well, which is a very, you know, complicated dynamic. And cases like that, you know, that's where you might see the wrong person get get killed or someone who happens to be near that person uh, getting caught in the crossfire. So it's a very frightening situation. I was just crunching a few numbers and you know, the the lower mainland murder rate for all of last year, we had 58 murders, and that includes domestic murders, you know, knife fights in the downtown east side, and gang shootings. We've had nine fatal shootings already this year. Wow. So at that rate, you know, we're going to have a terrible year. Hopefully things will calm down. Hopefully we'll see some charges laid in some of these cases. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's a really disturbing start to 2021 and you have uh, homicide investigators really run off their feet right speaking of investigations and um and, and ch- potential charges in these cases like when you see these type of targeted gang hits uh kim what is the the the, the solve rate on on these type of crimes because i know these are tough cases for police because everybody shuts up right so it's tough to get it's tough to get information but how often are the cops able to sort of uh, get charges in cases like this well, I do think they eventually get charges, but it can take years, right? Um, and, uh, you know, I don't have a statistic that I could point to directly related to these. There's certainly the solve rate is not as high as it would be in a domestic case where, right. you know, you catch a suspect in the act. Or, again, some of the violence that you might see in the downtown east side of Vancouver where, you know, people have an encounter altercation right on the street. Someone is stabbed uh, or beaten to death. And, you know, obviously the suspect is um, very quickly identified, if not right at the scene. So they are more complicated cases. The investigations are obviously, you know, they take longer. Sometimes police have to engage different uh, techniques. Uh, They try to get people to cooperate who are close to the inner circle. They do wiretaps. They put trackers on vehicles. 
Um, I do think we will see charges laid in some of these. And another thing we have to keep in mind is in some gang uh, shootings, uh, a person gets charged for one crime, but may well be linked to several others. So some, you know, so those cases will stay officially unsolved if no charges are laid, but the actual shooter has been charged in another crime. And I know that the police objective is to reduce the violence. So they will go after the people they believe are linked to the violence and they will, you know, try to prosecute them or get them prosecuted for any crime where they have strong evidence, right? right? So they want to take that person out of the picture. Might They may never be held accountable for every crime they've been, that they've committed, but they will get put behind bars for something. Speaking to Vancouver Sun crime reporter about the latest gang hits in Metro, let's uh, pivot to another story, Cam. And this is a strange one. You got the RCMP in Coquitlam uh, putting out a statement trying to calm public fears here about what they called social media rumors that have gone viral about women being abducted from the streets of Vancouver. They describe uh, social media stories about someone in somebody in a white vans chasing women, trying to abduct them, and the police saying there's no evidence to support that these abductions are actually happening. What is this about? Well, these reports have been circulating. I find that if I just write a news story uh, and tweet it out about the gang conflict, suddenly people are posting under my story about the white cube van and women going missing. And, you know, you're trying to sort of counter that misinformation as a journalist because you don't want it to be linked to your story. So uh, that was going on yesterday. Coquitlam RCMP issues this release saying that a lot of this is just rumors and urging people uh, not to carry on or retweet or post on social media these kinds of reports. Uh, however, interestingly, they issued, uh, Coquitlam RCMP issued another release today kind of apologizing for appearing dismissive yesterday because they're recognizing there's real concern out there, and they don't want people who have fears or perhaps have seen something unusual happen not to report that to the police. So uh, there doesn't appear to be any uh, truth to the rumors that a white van is going around stalking women and throwing them into their vehicle and taking off. Okay, so that we have to put to rest right away. That is not happening. However, we did have a missing woman report in the Tri-Cities area recently, you know, and people are concerned about that. She has not been found. Uh, today, uh, Coquitlam RCMP is saying, you know, there's no widespread reports of missing women, so people have to understand that. There is nothing to suggest that the reports of a white van, you know, being a suspect vehicle in abductions is true, so people should stop, you know, spreading that rumor. But they're saying, if you have any concerns, please call us, contact us. Right. You know, we want to hear from you. They don't want to appear to be dismissive. Now, interestingly, they, in their release today, they linked to a CNN report from December, right? And I went through this, and I, I just couldn't believe it. Guess what? There have been terrifying rumors initially posted on Facebook about white vans kidnapping bands. women all across the United States yeah. for sex trafficking. And yeah. that's not true either. So you can see that, you know, this may be a spin-off set of rumors that originated from similar rumors in the United States a couple of months back. Okay. Kim, thank you for coming on and thank you for the great work you continue to do. Appreciate it. 
Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. Anytime. Okay, you bet. That is Kim Bolin, the crime reporter at the Vancouver Sun. Give me a follow on Twitter. I just uh, posted a link to her latest work. Noise pollution. Now, have you ever had construction near your home that's driving you up the wall with excessive noise? We got a house being built in our neighborhood right now and there's been some noise for a while they were doing some blasting for a few days guys digging down to put a big basement in a new house so that was a bit of a not very pleasant then the jackhammering kind of started which was kind of worse now here's the good thing it didn't wasn't that long it was only a few days and it was over and and the construction guys were real nice too to telling people in the neighborhood what was going on but what happens if you get something like that next to your home and it goes on and on and on day after day this noise you got to deal with so many people are working from home now because of covid19 maybe having to deal with that kind of noise what can you do about it? Can you fight back? Well, let's talk about it now with my guest, Joanna Chu, Vancouver-based journalist for The Star. She wrote about this for The Star. Very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Joanna, thanks a lot for coming on. Hi, Mike. Hi, thanks for doing this. I really, I follow you on Twitter. I really enjoyed your Twitter thread on this, and you mm-hmm. write, you wrote about some of the construction that was going on near your home. You even uploaded a bit of a... Yeah, a bit of the sound. We're gonna let's play a little bit of that right now, Joanna. Here's what it sounds like next near your house. Okay, even five <laughs> seconds of that was pretty rough to take. So how often do you got to deal with that? So this has been going on since late October last oh. year. Um, at first, you're like, oh, it's going to be over soon, but it just kept going. So each month I just went more and more, just kind of unhinged to the point where <laughs> a couple of weeks ago I just lost it. I like went out screaming and my husband had to pull me back. I was like in my pajamas. It was like cold. Um, <laughs> and... You know, like I, instead of, you know, having a meltdown, I like did a journalist thing where I did research. Right. So I'm like, why is this happening? And it turns out that um, noise um, bylaws across Canada actually are really quite lax. In my area, um, uh, construction and all other types of noise pollution can, can go on for, for 15 hours a day. So from 7 a.m. till 10 p.m. every day, Monday to Saturday, including public holidays. Um, so I live outside of like city of Vancouver proper. Um, so okay, how partly, like, when does it start? Age came to this. Wait, what, when does me? the noise? When does the noise start? Is this like every day, right? Like what time do they start hammering? Yeah, it used to start before seven a.m. Um, oh, so it'd be like six fifty, and it would go on sometimes until after five. Luckily, these people didn't work right until ten p.m. I guess it's winter, so it'd be pretty harsh and cold. So. So then I started thinking about it, and like coincidentally, um, Mario Canseco, the president of Research Co., like a research company, he had a similar thing where outside his home, people are putting off fireworks, and this year of the pandemic, where everyone's already stressed and working from home, it bothered him so much more than it would otherwise. Uh, so he did a national poll asking Canadians across the country in urban areas and rural areas, do they think life is noisier now? This year than the past year, and uh, more than one in four Canadians said it does seem their lives are noisier now. Um, And for millennials, people between 18 to 34 year olds, um, that percentage of people who are really bothered is a lot bigger. It's almost 80%, which makes sense Mm -hmm. because people my age are living in places that might not be very like mansion like. (laughs) You probably don't have a lot of personal space. You might be dealing with very thin walls. And maybe uh, I actually work. 
full-time job and I'm working on a book on the side. So my working day is quite long. So it makes sense that if you're younger or your economic situation is not as secure, then um, noise happening while you're trying to work during a pandemic is going to bother you a lot more. Oh, yeah. I'm sure a lot of people are dealing with uh, similar situations, certainly in your neighborhood, I I imagine. Um, So let me ask you about how uh, you you confronted these groups. You mentioned that you kind of lost it at one point and you you went sort of charging out the door. So so, uh, describe what you did there. Yeah, so I kind of didn't charge completely because I was stopped by my husband who thought I was just, you know, going crazy. Um, So once I was more calm, I went out. um, And for some reason, I think I wasn't in the right mind still. Um, I put like a pillow underneath my shirt to look really pregnant to try to up the sympathy level. Um, And (laughs) I like waddled over to talk to construction workers. And they were actually really nice. They're like, we hate it too. Our ears are ringing. It's been going on for so long. It sucks. Um, and it, it did help, like, kind of humanize the situation. Like, before I was thinking of this noise as coming from the machine, I didn't really imagine, like, the people in there. Um, so hearing about how they're suffering, too, for some reason, it kind of helped me feel better. And Are they wearing ear protection, though? Yeah. Like, yeah. I have these, like, foamy earplugs. But I think when you're, like, in the machine, like, even ear protection is going to be that helpful. Um, So they did actually say, we're going to try to start a bit later because uh, we didn't realize how much you could hear it from, you know, half a block away. Uh, And and did they they do that? Did they start a little later? Yeah, actually. Okay. They started like half an hour later. So instead of before 7 sometimes, now they're starting like 7.30, sometimes 8 a.m. So I was like, yay, sleep in. So I think that was one of the tips I talked to a UBC uh, audiology expert, and he said sometimes you can't take control of the situation. You can ask nicely. A lot of people are very nice about it. They can maybe, um, if noise pollution comes from your neighbors, maybe gathering right outside your door and having like a really loud conversation, you can just be like, hey, can you please move on? I'm, I'm trying to work here. And, and that could resolve the situation, right. you know? Right. Speaking of Joanna Chu from the Star about uh, noise pollution, especially with people working at home during the pandemic. What about options locally, like local noise bylaws? Did you have any any options there to? Did you check out what the rules are? Like, are they breaking any rules with with this noise? Or can you can you put in a complaint? Yeah. So um, this professor also did research where most people. Actually, part of a national poll, most people did not complain or do anything about it, even if uh, this noise in the neighborhoods was actually violating noise bylaws. Um, So I think um, it might be like a Canadian thing where you don't want to make a big deal about something. But the thing is, it's kind of the job of bylaw enforcement officers to enforce bylaws. And if they don't know it's being broken in your neighborhood, they can't really do anything about it. So there's no hope of it. But you complained. Did you complain to the lo- your local municipal council, though, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. And I think that might have maybe more than my fake pregnancy ruse <laughs> may have been the reason that they started. Uh, they stopped starting before seven a.m. in yeah. my area. But under the under the local bylaws, they're allowed to start at seven. I imagine. Yeah, they're allowed to yeah. start at seven till ten, and seven it's interesting 10, because yeah. here in BC, it seems like in general in our municipalities there's more time for construction and other noises to happen. Whereas in Ontario, there's a controversy now because during the pandemic, um, there's like temporary extensions of noise bylaws. So now in Ontario, it's uh, 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. for a lot of construction work. 
And that has bothered a lot of people. But I'm thinking this is your extreme. Um, But for parts of BC, that's just our normal, like seven to 10. Um, So how long is it? How long is this going to go on for? Have they given you any, any estimate? Uh, I went and asked, and they're like, another month of jackhammering, so it's like a total half a year of jackhammering. So I think people shouldn't, like, underestimate that. There's no amount of, like, yoga or meditation or, like, you know, rock gardens in your house is going to make you feel happy about uh, this kind of noise happening um, on a long-term level um, when you're at home and you feel like you can't escape because it is a pandemic. Like, I did kind of break down and go to a local coffee shop. But the whole time I was in coffee shop, I was wearing a mask and like yeah, feeling anxious for every group. Yeah, I want to be at home. It's safer. Yeah. So it just becomes so much worse during the pandemic when you feel like home is a safe place um, and leaving, while it might be more pleasant, sound-wise, might not be as safe. So it's quite tough for people. So people shouldn't underestimate the mental health impacts of it. Um, okay. Okay, it's mm-hmm. a it's a fascinating story. Good job on it, Joanna. Thank you for coming on to talk about it, and I hope uh, I hope the noise stops for you soon. Yeah, I hope so. Okay, right. thanks a lot, Joanna Chu there from the Star. Here we go now with Canada's disrupted vaccine supply. Canada's vaccination rate falling down the list of global nations on a per capita basis. We are going in the wrong direction here. Lots of other countries way ahead of us when it comes to vaccinating their citizens. The United States. The United Kingdom, both way ahead of Canada. Lots of other countries ahead of us. Look down the list. Switzerland, Poland, Spain, Italy, Germany, France, Turkey, Brazil, China. The list just goes on as Canada continues to fall down the list here of vaccine rates around the world. Now, last week on the show, I spoke to Liberal MP Steve McKinnon. He is one of the Trudeau government's point people on this. And I asked him, what about the promise here to have everyone vaccinated by September? He says they're still on track to do that. Here's what he told me. Yes, we will. And that's just of the two approved vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, of course, uh, as other vaccines get approved. Uh, we know about AstraZeneca. We know about uh, uh, two others, uh, Johnson & Johnson. And now uh, we will have well in excess of the number of uh, doses required okay. to vaccinate every Canadian. Okay, Liberal MP Steve McKinnon on the show earlier. Let's get the other side of it now. My guest is Conservative MP Brad Viss. He represents Mission in the House of Commons. I'm pleased to welcome him. Uh, thank you very much for coming on. Hey, thank you for having me today. Yeah, it's our pleasure to have you here. What are your thoughts on this issue here? We see Canada going down the list of countries when it comes to per capita vaccinations, but we hear again from the government again today, don't worry, more vaccine is coming. We're going to get back on track here. Your thoughts? Well, you know, if the government didn't want Canadians to worry, they could step up to the plate and make an arrangement so that the opposition parties in Parliament could see the contracts that they keep referring to, but refuse to give us access to. Okay, why would that make a difference, do you think? Well, because we don't know whether they're telling us the truth, whether they're massaging the numbers. We don't have any clue. I literally, as a member of Parliament, have just as much information as you about the vaccine rollout. We, we are left in the dark by this government, and that uncertainty is creating uh, a lot of worried people. There's a lot of apprehension in our communities, yeah. and the government could do something about that. Can okay. I give you an example about how they could do that? Sure. 
Well, for example, Aaron O'Toole, the leader of the Conservative Party, he's a member of the Privy Council. They could designate the, they could make Jagmeet Singh a member of the Privy Council. They could put them behind a closed door and they could have access to those contracts without breaching any of the confidentiality clauses. Then those leaders of the, the two official opposition parties could come out to Canadians and they could say whether the government was telling the truth or whether they were massaging the numbers. But from this government, time and time again, throughout the whole pandemic, they're trying to avoid accountability. And that apprehension is hurting people's lives. And it's it's scary out there for a lot of people. Okay, let me play this here for you, Brad. This is Anita Anand, the federal procurement minister. And here she is speaking on this precise point of why we can't see these vaccine contracts. Anita Anand, here she is uh, speaking to the West Block on Global. Here's what she said. You may say, well, there are some jurisdictions that have released their contracts. The contracts, and they are few in number that have been released, have been A, heavily redacted, B, don't contain delivery schedules, and C, released on the uh, agreement of the supplier at hand, none of which are present in the Canadian context. Okay, Anita, Anand, all right, well, you know, if I can see how they would... Okay, your response, what do you say to her? Yeah, I, I don't buy it. I think we there's ways within the, the Canadian system that we could provide certainty to Canadians by granting access through the Privy Council office, yeah. members of the opposition parties to review these contracts while upholding any of the confidentiality clauses. But probably they haven't even thought about doing that because they're too afraid of the consequences if they do. Yeah, I mean, there are other countries that have released these contracts, and you heard her say there, well, these other countries that have done it, a lot of it has been, the information has been redacted because there's commercial sensitivities here. And that's that's sort of standard operating procedure when governments release information like that. Yeah, of course, they may have to black some stuff out or censor some stuff for commercial reasons. I mean, that's no reason not to release the material, though. Your thoughts? Well, exactly. And we, the government has been saying it's a Team Canada approach. It's a Team Canada approach. But Parliament and our entire country is being left in the dark, except for a few people. And what they've proven to us is that we cannot rely on the assurances they're giving us today. That is, that's what's problematic. Speaking to Conservative MP uh, Brad Viss. Brad, here's I'm going to play another clip here for you, but uh, one of the other things we just heard from the minister there, she said that some of these other countries that have released these contracts and agreements, it has been done with the agreement of the the supplier. So the other person, the company, I guess the pharma company that they may have contracted with has agreed to release the contract. That's another one that's kind of a head scratcher for me, because when I listen to that, it makes me, it makes me uh, conclude that uh, Canada did not secure a similar agreement when they when they negotiated these contracts if there's a clause in these contracts that says they must be kept secret do you would you think that would be a failure of Canada's negotiators to include a clause like that well I, I think it is a failure on the part of our negotiators and again it's leaving Canadians in the dark but every day that goes by that we have another vaccine delay it's another day that goes by that another business is shut in British Columbia I'm a big rugby fan High school rugby is about to start. They're probably going to cancel their season for a, for a second year. The consequences of the decisions of Minister Nan and Prime Minister Trudeau are having a really negative impact on our society. People's mental health uh, concerns are rising through the roof. People don't know how much longer they can go on. And, if this, and the government has a responsibility to give us assurances. 
when the pandemic started, I was in the House of Commons in March. We all worked together to do what we needed to do for our country. The opposition parties gave extra measures to the government so that they could roll out benefit plans as quickly as possible. What we naively expected, I guess, and that's on me, is that we expected the government to reciprocate with providing assurances and access to information for the security and public well-being of our country, and they are not doing that. Okay, that one of the... One one of the things that, that that I think is troubling as well is we do not have a domestic supply of vaccine. We did not have the capacity to produce the vaccine at the start of this pandemic. But other countries were in a similar position, and they, they've managed to do better than Canada. Like I'm thinking particularly about the United Kingdom that yeah. similarly did not have the capacity to produce vaccine. Now they are making their own vaccine. Why didn't Canada do the same thing? Now, I think at the start of this pandemic, I think a lot of Canadians were cutting the government a lot of slack here because this was an unprecedented situation. It's an emergency. But I, we continue to see now the kind of approval ratings for Trudeau on this file continuing to slide because I want, I think a lot of people are saying we're a year into this thing. How come we have not developed some sort of capacity to produce this vaccine ourselves? Now, let me, let me play this here for you. I want to get your thoughts on that. But let me play this here for you. This is, uh, once again, Steve McKinnon, uh, the liberal MP who was on the show earlier. And I asked him about Canada continuing sort of tumble down the list of global mm-hmm. nations here on a per capita basis for vaccinating our citizens here. Why is that happening? And here's what he told me. We, of course, are experiencing temporary pressures on the Pfizer and the Moderna uh, uh, vaccines that are coming from Europe. All countries are experiencing some reduction in their allocations. Moderna uh, has announced uh, some, some subsequent reductions. But we have 6 million doses, the same 6 million doses that we told you about in December and January. We have 6 million doses of those two vaccines coming to Canada before the end of March, before the end of the first quarter, and another 20 million of those two vaccines coming to Canada before the end of June. Okay, Liberal MP Steve McKinnon. Brad Viss, what do you say to that? You know what? I don't take anything the Liberals say on any numbers related to vaccines right now. Frankly, they're going through an approval process. An approval process means that some of these vaccines the parliamentary secretary says we're going to get might not be approved. That's not an assurance. There's a scientific process that needs to be followed, and that's independently done. So he can't just make statements saying, well, we're going to get this vaccine after the approval process. An approval process means we might not get it. Um, going back to your original point about what uh, about Britain in March and where yeah. Canada was, right. Canada, right now, what I've been told, the reports coming out of Montreal is that Justin Trudeau has started building brick and mortar, a new facility to uh, produce vaccines in Canada. I'm sure there's lots of warehouses where we could adapt an existing building uh, to start that process right now. And then to hear reports out of Calgary about other Canadian companies uh, that could have started the process um, back in March or April of last year, we, we might be in a much better position than we are in Canada. All this goes to the fact that the decisions made by the Trudeau government in the early days are having a real consequence on our on our on our way of life right now uh, that are very, very troublesome. And I, I think it was really, really wrong of the government to make an agreement with China. Uh, to produce a vaccine in Canada, and then not to explore any other avenues. Right. It was naive on, on the part of the Liberal government to put all of their vaccine 
uh, uh, tools with the Communist Party of China. That just didn't serve our country very well. No, it didn't, it didn't uh, last very long, kind of quickly unraveled on the government there. Brad Viss, thank you for coming on today with your thoughts. Thank you, sir, and really appreciate the time. Well, let's talk about the outbreaks of COVID-19 we've seen in some ski towns in British Columbia. Some of the names in the headlines, Fernie, Revelstoke, Big White. We've seen lots of COVID cases in these ski communities, and especially Whistler. Now, we've seen 547 reported cases of COVID-19 in Whistler so far this year, nearly half of those in the final week of January. The health minister, Adrian Dix, says this is way, way, way too many in his words, but he does point out that people are not catching the virus when they're outside skiing. Here's what he says. One of the places we're seeing transmission is in social gatherings and social settings around Whistler. It's not skiing on the mountain that has been the principal source of transmission. Okay, the government says they are working on a safety plan for Whistler. We could see that as early as tomorrow. Let's check in with Jack Crompton now, the mayor of Whistler. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hi, Mayor Crompton. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Happy to be here. Thanks a lot for doing it. Can you give me a report from on the ground up there? Like, how serious is this situation in your mind? Oh, extremely serious. We've, uh, as soon as the numbers started to move, uh, the provincial health office and, and the Ministry of Health have been very engaged here, and there is a lot of work for us to do. So, it's it's serious. Yeah, what are you hearing from the government in terms of uh, mitigation measures or a safety plan that's being developed? Are you in on the loop on that? Are they consulting with you on it? Yeah, so we've submitted a significant uh, amount of, of, of input from our side, but uh, we've been working with them pretty closely over the last few weeks anyway. Um, and that program that will roll out is, will be in addition to a lot of work that's already being done. We've had Vancouver Coastal Health on the ground doing inspections and um, enforcement. We've uh, been working on some some congregate housing isolation, um, housing for people who are who are needing to isolate away from homes where there are other people. Uh, and so there's ongoing work that this will definitely supplement. Um, but it's not just starting now, as you can imagine. It's been it's been ongoing. Where are people catching the virus in, from your perspective? I mean, we've heard the minister just say in that clip that people aren't getting sick because they're out they're out skiing. It's difficult to uh, to to pass the virus on outside. Uh, it's afterwards, right? It's sort of people when they're inside, or is it happening in like pubs, restaurants, or residences? Where are people catching it? My understanding, and I am no medical doctor, is yeah. uh, that this is happening in inside social settings, um, often in homes. And a lot of it actually has to do with shared living situations. And if they get into a home where there's a large number of people, it moves very quickly. And we had been relatively... Um, untouched, well, not untouched, we, we, we had relatively few cases all the way until November. Um, and one of the main reasons we hadn't is it hadn't really got in into these congregate housing settings. But once it does, it moves extremely quickly, and that's what's happened for us. I imagine you are in a tough spot here as the mayor. I mean, this is a tourism town, and you need tourism for your economy. On the other hand, uh, you know, we've got this this challenge with the virus. What is your message to, to people? Are you telling people to stay away? Yep, I am. We're uh, we don't have a tourism economy here until COVID is is in the rear view, and so uh, we need to do absolutely everything in our power to uh, get to the other side. And this is not the time to come to Whistler for a family day. 
uh, weekend or for spring break, this is a time to stay home and enjoy your home community, recreate where you live, uh, and and help us all get to the other side. So I hope that you'll let me come back on your show at a future time when I can invite everybody to come visit Whistler. But uh, this certainly isn't that. Okay, I saw I saw a meme on uh, social media the other day about the situation uh, with the mayor from the movie Jaws. Do you do you remember in that scene in the in the Jaws mm-hmm. movie where the mayor says, "Oh, don't worry about the sharks. You know, come on down." I, I got a brief clip of that. Let's play it here. This is from Jaws. You got that, Brendan? Okay, maybe we don't maybe we don't have that. Oh, that's too bad. Anyway, we all I'm, know I'm, kind, clip, I'm kind of I mean, I've, I've had it sent to me 15 or 20 times, so I've, I've watched it a bunch. I've only. Okay, I do got it. Hang on. Okay, let's play it. Here it is. I'm pleased and happy to repeat the news that we have, in fact, caught and killed a large predator that supposedly injured some bathers. But as you see, it's a beautiful day. The beaches are open, and people are having a wonderful time. Amity, as you know, means friendship. Okay, I, I play that just as half as, as a joke. But on the other hand, you're the mayor here for this, this community. You're, you're obviously a very different situation here. You're telling people to stay away, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Dr. Henry talks about day skiing being an okay practice, but holidaying is just not something that we uh, can have right now. We're, we're, we're needing people to mind their own health, mind our health, and, and ensure that we get to the other side of this as quickly are you as we feeling? Can. Are you feeling any pressure, though, to keep the ski hill open, keep the hotels open, keep people in town? I mean, you've got a big American corporation, runs this ski resort up there. Are they, are they putting any kind of heat on you to keep things going? Mike, no one is making money right now keeping their businesses yeah. open. I think the vast majority of people right now are trying to keep people employed and keep a lot of those safety features that we've built into society available to us. When we closed in March of 2020, we had 12,000 people who were without um, any of those sort of day-to-day responsibilities. And, you know, schools are places where kids have safety built into them. There's cohorts that allow them to be uh, safer. When in March, we had huge parties on our lakes. We had a whole bunch of people without anything to do day to day. And so I see these as safety factors as much as they're um, anything else. And, and we, yeah. we, we just simply, like I said before, don't have an economy in this town until COVID is in our rearview mirror. This has been absolutely devastating for us yeah. and not just for us, but all of, all of Canada, the tourism sector, I'll tell you, uh, needs COVID to be done with for us to oh, yeah. have business success. Oh, I hear you. And that's what we're all hoping for. And speaking of Whistler, Mayor Jack Crompton, uh, we're expecting uh, some sort of a safety plan to come out from public health officials for Whistler maybe as, as early as this week. We understand. Is that what you're anticipating this week? Yeah, this week. And like I say, it'll be a supplement to a lot of the work that's ongoing. Right. And are you at... You don't want to see the town shut down, though, right? You're not saying, like, is shutting down the ski hill an option or on the table or not? Yeah, I mean, that's what we're all working right now towards saving the season. If the, if, uh, if the ski hill was closed, if, if businesses in this town were closed, it's not a decision that we would make. That would be made by the provincial health office. Right. Um, but uh, our goal right now is to ensure that that doesn't happen. We want to save our ski season. Right. So keep the hill open 
keep, allow people to keep skiing, but just locally, right? What about day trips? Like, can people come up there on a day trip and then go home? That's the direction Dr. Henry's sharing is if you're going to ski, uh, get in your vehicle, go to the ski hill, ski, and then head home. Yeah. Yeah, it was a long day for a lot of people, but, you know, so so you're saying, but the hotels are still open. I mean, are the hotels still advertising and telling people to come on up? Not that I know of. We, we okay. uh, Tourism Whistler is an organization that uh, the RMOW is a part of, and we stopped advertising um, a long time ago. Uh, I mean, we're advertising for next fall, um, but certainly not advertising for people to come up here right now. Okay, thanks for coming on. Difficult spot for you. We, uh, we're watching very closely for the safety plan when it comes out this week. Thanks again for coming on today. Mike, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on.